Uh, we have a busy, busy part of our life. I don't want to waste any time, but I want to just let you know um, that's, uh, just a couple of things going on in our world. Um, thank you for the plug for the podcast. I would encourage you to check it out. Paul White Ministries, wherever you get podcasts, just type that in and uh, check us out. We put up nine audio releases every week, one every day called the Deeper Daily Podcast, where we walk through the Bible, just talking about seeing it through a new covenant lens. And then two full sermons every week, one on Wednesday, one on Sunday. And uh, everything's free. Check it out. I hope it's a blessing to you. We're, we're approaching 5 million audio downloads. And so there are, there's someone listening somewhere. Uh, and I, I'm thankful for that. Uh, we are in a busy season in our life. Please pray safe travels for us. It seems like we're all over the place trying to graduate people uh, the, at this season. We just saw my son graduate from university last weekend in Nebraska And we're heading home to celebrate my daughter graduating high school this coming Friday. So it's a very exciting time in our lives, and uh, we cover your prayers as we hit the road. Speaking of hitting the road, let's go. You ready for some Jesus this morning, right? I want to meet you in the book of Deuteronomy, and you're thinking, how are we getting to Jesus if we're opening in the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, Good question. I am intrigued by the questions of the Bible. I love to watch, and and what I mean by that is the questions that God asks in the Bible, either the questions that God asks of men or that God demands us to ask of ourselves, I find those intriguing. I feel like if God's asking a question, it can't be because God doesn't know the answer. It must be because God perceives that I don't know the answer or that I won't ask that question without his help. And that that's the question that would unlock something in me if I would pay attention and ask that question. So when I watch God asking questions or Jesus asking questions, I don't assume he doesn't know. I assume that the people he's asking do not know. And that he thought, because he deemed it necessary to put it in the Bible, that maybe I wouldn't know. And that if I would ask that question, I could unlock something that would be beneficial to my life. And so I want to take you today to a Jesus question. But to do that, we're going to start in Deuteronomy for this reason. I think sometimes we hear the questions of Jesus or the questions of God and we're making an assumption about the question without having sat through the course. If you walked in on finals week in a classroom and you heard the final exam theme and you hadn't come to class one time, for anyone that ever went to college or seminary, that's a bad way to try to pass that class. And you think, oh, I can just nail this final. And you didn't sit through one lecture. You didn't read one book. You didn't look up one item. You didn't write anything down. Good luck because you have no context. You might think you're smart enough to make that work by reading that question, but probably not. And what happens a lot of times is we're reading the questions of Jesus, but we didn't set through the course. And without setting through the course, we don't really understand what the classroom is working with. Like, what does Peter, James, and John know about that statement that I don't know? Well, probably a lot. Peter, James, and John are first century Jewish men who were raised on Torah. I'm a 21st century man who is lucky I can pronounce it, you know, and certainly can't understand it in the Hebrew. And so what what might they have brought to the table that I can't possibly bring to the table? But because I get to go back and at least look at their source text, I might be able to get an understanding of it. So... We're going to try to condense their course, their semester, down into one little slice of Torah today as we head to the backside of the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. 
And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. This is like the biblical version of student loan forgiveness. Amen. I'm paying mine back too. I I woo along with you. Forgive them. And I think if you, I'm going to leave that alone. I was going to say, if you have a problem with that, read that verse again. Of a foreigner, you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Check that out. Of a foreigner, you may actually require that debt, but if it's not a foreigner, then you give, then, then you can, you, you got to give up the claim to that. So we've parsed the difference between the debt owed to us by people in our family in our bloodline, in our tribe, versus the debt owed to us by people that are the outsiders. Let's call them the others. The others are not to be looked at the same as the us. At least that's what it looks like is happening in this text. So you don't have to, you, you don't have to claim that which is owed by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance. So, no foreign, no foreigner counts, and don't bother if there are no poor. All right, I'm just setting us up. This is early in the course, all right? Just a couple of ground rules as we get started in the text. So if there's no poor among you, then in verse five, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments, which I command you today, for the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. We love to quote stuff like Deuteronomy 15, 6, that we will lend, but we will lend, but not borrow, but we don't like to quote that we're supposed to be forgiving debts of people that owe us money. Okay, so this is one of those moments where we like to pick the part of the chapter that feels good and sort of just slide past the part of the chapter that doesn't feel good. And so we're not going to get to do that. You're going to find that that doesn't work because you're going to need that info on the final. You don't just get to go, I'm going to skip Thursday's class. I'll still be cool. There's going to be some stuff in there you need, and so we got to pay attention. we got to watch. Watch verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Now beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it become a sin among you. Let me pause there for just a moment. God gives a big beware, because remember how this chapter opened. It was this, in the seventh year, you forgive debts. And so as he gets deeper into the chapter, God goes, I know what you're thinking. Whenever somebody borrows from you, you're thinking about how close are we to the seventh year? Am I gonna be able to get this back? And if we're too close to the seventh year, then I will conveniently turn my cell phone off until we restart the debt calendar so that I don't hear from anybody in need because I don't want to forgive in the seventh year. It's already year six. I'd rather wait until it's, say, year one or two to get started, and then I get a bunch of, you know, then they got to pay me back over the course of time. And so the beware is 
Don't watch to see how much you're going to be able to get back if you're bumped up against the year of release. He said, because that would be, and look at that interesting statement in the middle of verse 9, that would be your eye being evil against your poor brother. And that's where I want to land for just a second this morning, is the idea of the evil eye. Now, I'm not talking about what is common amongst a lot of, say, Zoroastrianism and other thought processes, new age processes of the world, even reaching back into some Jewish rabbinical tradition is the idea that if you gave the evil eye harshly enough to someone, you could place a curse upon them. That's not Torah. That's the traditions of men. The Torah tradition of the evil eye is whenever you look at someone and resent the necessity to help them or resent that they are able to receive what you are able to receive, knowing that they belong to the other, knowing that they are outside of your group, knowing that they are not part of that circle. And so this is the evil eye that the Hebrews would talk about. Let's close this passage here, 10, 10 and 11. You shall surely give to him, your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and all which you put in your hand. Here's the great irony of the chapter. Remember this from earlier in the chapter. I'll read it for you. In verse 4, God said, you can ignore the whole debt release if there be no poor among you. That was verse 4. Look at verse 11. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, to your needy in your land. In other words, I told you earlier to ignore all of the debt release if you ever get to the place where there are no poor. Here comes the irony. There will never be a moment where there are no poor, he says. So by the way, if you got excited earlier in the course when you found out that there are caveats to your forgiveness and there are caveats to your debt release, he goes, I'm here to bust your bubble. The caveat you thought you had will never exist. There'll always be somebody in need, right? And so the evil eye of Deuteronomy chapter 15, and this is its place, its only place in Torah, is the evil eye of Deuteronomy 15 is to cast a look at someone for whom you're pretty sure doesn't deserve the goodness or the favor that you have. I want to fast forward that into the life and ministry of Jesus because I believe that Jesus is working with a course book that his disciples understand. They understand this. They were raised on it. Jesus then tells the story in Matthew chapter 20 of a employer who goes out into the marketplace at sunup and hires day laborers. Day laborers are the men who stood at the city gate awaiting anyone who needed work in their field and they would hop into the wagon and ride out to the field and harvest the field all day long for an agreed upon wage, which in Roman days was usually called the denarius or the denarii, which was one day's workman's late wages. Okay, so if you received one denarius, you had worked one full day. And interestingly enough, in Matthew 20, Jesus breaks down the process of hiring. He starts in the morning when the sun comes up and he says to these men, and here's an important part that I want you to lock into your brain. He says to these men, I want to hire you today and I will pay you what is right. It's an important phrase. I will pay you what is right. And each of them are promised to receive the denarius, the day's labor. As he gets to the field about 9 a.m., third hour of the day, he realizes he doesn't have enough workers and there's more guys in town. So he jumps back in the wagon, he rides to town, he finds a bunch of other guys that are ready to work. And so he hires them and says, I'll pay you that which is right 
And at 12 o'clock, he finds he's got room in his field for more workers. So he goes back to town and you see the scene replayed. I'll pay you that which is right. And at three o'clock, he goes back to town to find more workers to pay him that which is right. And then strangely, the workday ends, let's say 6 p.m. That's the 12th hour. Strangely enough, at 5 p.m., he decides he could probably squeeze a few more guys into the corner of that field if he just had enough time to get to town and pay them. So at 5 p.m., he goes back into town and loads the wagon one more time. He goes, you guys want to work? I'll pay you that which is right. And he brings them all back. And as the 6 o'clock whistle to stop work blows, everyone lines up to receive their wages. And the 11th hour workers, the guys who just barely sweat enough to take off that outer jacket, walk up to receive their pay. Remember, they've worked about 60 minutes. And as they line up to receive their pay, they're handed their denarii, their one-day wages coin. And the man standing at the back of the line, somewhere started work around 6 or 7 a.m., agreed to work for that which is right, elbows his buddy and says, did you see that? They're all making one denarius. I bet we're going to get more than we thought we were. I think when we get up there, we're probably going to end up getting three or four denarii. This was the best job we could have possibly taken. What a guy. And as the line goes through and one coin drops into the hands of each and every person, Mr. 6 a.m. back here has had all he can take because his sense of unfairness is completely riled at this point. And the sense of unfairness has him feeling as if he is getting ripped off, even though, by the way, he hasn't even been paid yet. But he believes mentally, I'm getting ripped off because someone in this line worked from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock, and it looks like they're going to make exactly what I made for working 12 full hours. I want to read for you what Jesus says in response to this in Matthew chapter 20. And I want to start in verse 18. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, not, not verse 18, verse 13. He answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours, go your way. I wish to give it to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? There's the question. Is your eye evil because I am good? Now, if we had not read Deuteronomy 15, odds are we would mess this up if we were handed the final. Can you explain to me what Jesus might have meant when he said, is your eye evil if I do good? Had we not sat through that little slice of Torah, we might not know what Jesus meant, but you did set through that little slice of Torah. And based upon what we know about Deuteronomy 15, what is Jesus asking? He says, didn't you agree to work for one denarius? Isn't this what we signed up for? First of all, can't I do whatever I want with my own stuff? Good question. Can God do whatever God wants with his own stuff? Does grace belong to God? Forgiveness belong to God? Righteousness, favor, mercy, all of it belongs to God. God is asking in this story an amazing question. Can't I do whatever I want with my own stuff? Can I give grace where I want to give grace? Can I forgive whoever I want to forgive? Can I show mercy wherever I want to show mercy? Do I need to ask your permission? Do I need to make sure that they earned it? Do I need to line it up and make sure it's fair? Fair is a word we love. 
We think it requires that everyone gets the same thing, and yet God's response in this text is, don't, have, don't ask for fair, ask for my best. Don't ask for fair, ask for what I want to give. Ask for the favor that is good to the giver. And so he says, isn't it mine to give? Can't I give whatever I want? And then that great question, is your eye evil? Because I am good. And that thought to me means, go back to the moment in Torah where I told you what it meant to have an evil eye. And what did it mean? It meant that you would look at someone and determine that they were not worth it. And Jesus said, have you determined that they are not worth it? And the answer, let's be honest, from these workers would have been, yes, that's exactly what I determined. They are not worth it. They didn't work as long as I did. They didn't, and in spiritual terms, they didn't pay what I paid. They didn't ask for what I asked for. They didn't fast as much as I fasted. They didn't go as much as I went. They didn't do what I've done. How dare God give them what God gives me? And I say to you, if you struggle today, with accepting that God gets to be good to whom God wants to be good and they didn't pay the price that you paid, I ask you, is it possible that your eye is evil towards God being good to those whom we wish God would be a little less good to? And so the evil eye is not a hex or a curse. The evil eye is my condition where I look out at the other and say, I don't think the other deserves what I've paid for. I'm not sure they deserve the goodness that I have received. And here's the real kicker for me, is the fact that he was good to me when I was the other. And he was good to you when you were the other, because newsflash, you still are. The outsider, the vagabond, the stranger, the one undeserving. The one unworthy, and because of that, we desperately need the goodness of God planted and presented in our heart. Now, I think Deuteronomy 15 dealt with the issue of the poor. Because remember that irony in there when he goes, hey, if there's no poor, you don't have to worry about this whole thing. By the way, there's always going to be poor. It was kind of a fun little moment there in Deuteronomy 15. But he didn't deal with the stranger. He left that alone. Now, I don't mean the Torah doesn't deal with the stranger. I actually am persuaded that God's entire old covenant was to get us to take care of the widows, the followers, the poor, and the stranger, and our neighbor. What we did was we substituted the old covenant for righteousness. And we thought that if God gave a bunch of laws, if we'd keep them, we'd be better people. And that's the deception of laws, rules, and regulations. The laws, rules, and regulations were not to make you righteous. It was to teach you to love people you didn't want to. And so you might want to lie to somebody. You might want to steal from them. You might want to cheat on them. But the law goes, no, you're not allowed to do that. Go, oh, drats, I'm not supposed to do that. doesn't mean we don't do it, but at least we had a rule before we ran the light, right? So then if we substitute that for righteousness and that becomes a problem, Paul said that which was meant to give me life gave me death because I, I can't use those laws to make me righteous. I got to use those laws as parameters. So I think part of what the old covenant was was so that we would learn to take care of the people around us. In fact, there's a fascinating little moment in the Torah, not far from our text in Deuteronomy, where God says that if a brother loses everything in, in your village. Take him into your house as if he were a stranger. Now, if God preached that in our world, we would think that means treat, just only put him in the guest room and you know, don't, don't give him much. But in the Jewish world, to treat them as a stranger meant to treat them as if they were the very best thing that ever came to your home. 
So if the brother falls, treat him as a stranger meant, treat him in the highest possible regard. And so I think the Old Testament is dealing with the stranger. But Jesus, there's no, I'm sorry, not Jesus, but, but the Torah doesn't get us off the hook in Deuteronomy 15 for the outsider. Because remember, you don't have to cancel the debt for the stranger, he said. The stranger still owes you. The only one you cancel the debt for is your brother. You don't have to do that for the outsider. And these little moments caused Israel to have to develop this idea that when God is great and God is good, he's good first to them. And then if he's good to anybody outside the circle, it's just God's grace rolling over. And a little bit of that's still alive and well in the church where we kind of feel like when God does his good thing, he does it first on his church, first for his people. And then anybody else that's outside of it can kind of get maybe what's left over, what, what kind of laps over the side, the excess. Maybe that belongs to someone on the outside. And we kind of justify that and say, well, that's just God being a good God and God being a gracious God. But I want to present to you that I think Jesus in his earthly ministry makes the argument that in the eyes of God, he doesn't see a difference, that he's broke down the wall between who's in and who's out, between the outsider and the insider, and that he does that in such a powerful way that it actually puts Jesus on the cross. See, because I think Jesus ends up on the cross, not simply because he was a disappointment, he wasn't the savior they were looking for, he didn't pick up a sword and go kill Caesar, but he ends up on the cross because he allows people into that inner circle that we thought were supposed to be automatically excluded from that circle. And one of the reasons that I believe this happens in the amazing fourth chapter of Luke. In the fourth chapter of Luke, Jesus does what the Bible says was his custom, and that was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Here's a little side note that tells me that it was Jesus' custom to get together with other believers. So it probably ought to be ours. And I know when I'm saying in that in a church that's preaching to the choir because you're already with other believers. But somebody might watch this on YouTube who disdains other believers. And they go, I'm going to get all of my Jesus with just me and this couch and a bag of Doritos. And while that sounds amazing, sometimes you need to go congregate with a body of believers because they bring things out of you you didn't know was there. And you're not going to like that at first. And that's why you need them. And so Jesus had a habit of gathering with other believers. And in those gatherings on the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, they would read from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They just called them the scrolls of the prophets or the Psalms or the Proverbs. And that day they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And there's a lot of scholarly debate as to whether Jesus picked the spot he wanted to read or whether it was the assigned spot to read on that day. I don't care about that argument. What I do know is that he read from what we call the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. And in that remarkable moment, I want to read for you what Jesus reads for them, but I don't, I don't want to read it from the Isaiah passage. I want to read it from the Luke passage, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stops somewhere about in the middle of verse, what we call verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 61. And he has laid out for them this coming individual. Someone is coming upon whom is going to be the spirit of the Lord, upon who is going to heal the sick, upon who is going to open the prison doors for those of us who are captive, and then who is going to do this amazing thing, proclaim or preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And for a Jewish audience, the acceptable year of the Lord was the year of Jubilee. It was the year of the release of debt. It was the year in which 
if this was the 50th year on the Jewish calendar, and in that 50th year, all lands went back to their previous owners. How would that go over in our modern day? Bring that one up at your next city council meeting. Say, I'd like to see us go back to the year of Jubilee. Whoever owned this property before me gets it back automatically in the 50th year. Be careful when you think you want a theocracy. <laughs> and, and, so the, and, and so Jubilee is the declaration. Debts are gone. Property goes back to its original owner. Everybody wins. God's favor falls upon the nation. The acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stands and proclaims in that passage, this is what's happening. This is that acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today is the scripture fulfilled in your hearing. Now I want you to catch that word because that means that I'm the one of whom I just read. He says, the spirit of the Lord won't be upon some other guy. He says, the spirit of the Lord's upon me. He says, I'm going to be the one that sets the captives free. I'm going to be the one that releases the broken heart. I'm going to be the one that makes the blind to see. And I declare to you, Jubilee is here. And for a people who've been screaming for, clamoring for Jubilee, I want you to imagine that you've been waiting for this moment. You've been waiting on a celebration or in good old church lingo, you've been praying for revival and you can feel that it's in the air. It's finally happening. The swell is happening. The excitement, the, 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 the hair on the back of your neck standing up. You can sense the mighty presence of God is happening and everybody bore witness and they marveled at his gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? What is going on here? This is amazing. This room is full with awe and excitement. Jubilee is here. Yes. Now, I don't, I'm not giving you this verse yet, but I just want to read one for you, okay? We'll get there. Awe, excitement, marvelous, wow, jubilee. And just a little while later, all those in that same synagogue, when they heard what Jesus said, were filled with wrath. And I only jumped like seven or eight verses. So... <laughs> What happens between Jubilee and we want this guy to die? How do we go from this is an exciting moment of revival, this is the greatest thing that ever happened, this is what we always look for, this is what we always prayed for, to if this is what you mean, we don't want you, we don't want to be a part of you, you need to be out of here. How do we go from that awe to that anger and we go so quickly? I think it might be because of this. Listen to verse 25. I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent to except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue when they heard these words were filled with wrath. What is such a big deal about what Jesus just said that took them from excitement to anger? Why were they so pumped to be in Jubilee and then so mad to find out what Jubilee really was? Because remember, Jubilee is everybody gets their debts taken away. But Jubilee and seven-year release is confined. The foreigner doesn't count, remember? Deuteronomy 15, if they're a stranger, forget it. 
They don't get into the party. And that gives you a little sense of self, man. We're going to get this thing from God, but we earned it, man. We're the right ones. We're doing what needs to be done. We're saying what needs to be said. We're praying the prayers we need to pray. I'm doing all of the things that line up to be the debt release. God favors me. I got grace and mercy and forgiveness and all that good stuff because I belong in the group. The others, I can't really account for them. You know, it's just not a fair world. It's just the way it goes. If they get anything, it's just a favor of God rolling off of me and onto them. And they just stay in my wake. And that's the room. The room is, this is it. This is Jubilee. And Jesus goes, before you throw, put up your party streamers and send out your invitations for Jubilee parties. He said, I just want to remind you of a couple of little points from your own history. So a long time ago, there was a famine in the land and God had a man named Elijah. And people were dying all over the place of this famine, both in Israel and in the foreign countries. And God sent his man out to feed a widow, because that's what God does. He feeds widows. And he takes care of the fatherless and the poor. And so God sent his man out into a poorhouse to take care of a widow and her son, to bless them, to give them enough food to make it through the famine and to do it supernaturally. And he said, and that widow was from Zarephath, a village outside of the land of Israel. And to double down on the pain of that point, Jesus then looks at them and says, Were there no widows in the land of Israel that God could find that he could have done a miracle in the house of a good Jewish girl? Why did he have to go outside of Israel to find the widow at Zarephath to be good to? And knowing that his audience is getting agitated because it's a toughie, nobody's got a good answer. He just moves on and he picks another story and he goes, oh, and a generation later, there was another prophet, a man named Elisha. And he said he healed one leper of leprosy, the only healing of leprosy recorded in the Old Testament. And he said the man that he healed of leprosy was Naaman, a Syrian. And now Jesus has crossed the line. Zarephath is a village just on the outskirts of Israel. It's even got a bunch of Israelites in it. There's a half chance that the widow Zarephath, maybe she was Jewish. You know, it's possible But just in case you were pretty sure she must be, that's why God sent Elijah, Jesus picks Naaman, the Syrian general, whose people specialize in the genocide of Jews. And he goes, were there not enough lepers in Israel that God could have sent Elisha to one of them? Why does God choose to heal the only leper in the Old Testament to be, and I'm not even going to try to insert whatever the most offensive people group is to you, but you go ahead and do that. Find the biggest other you can find and stick them right there in the river of Jordan with Elijah telling him, go to the river of Jordan and dip seven times. That's a Jewish number. I'm gonna give you God's Hebrew key to healing. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. But if you'll dip seven times, you'll be healed of your plague. And Naaman the Syrian dips seven times, and he is healed of his plague. And Jesus grabs those two stories, and he says, you're excited about Jubilee, aren't you? Jubilee's a good time. Today's Jubilee. He goes, but it isn't what you think it is. Because what true Jubilee is, is the widows of Zarephath and the Syrian generals named Naaman get to come to the party and celebrate under the same fountain of grace 
that you were so excited a few moments ago to usher in with your praise and now are so angry about that you're ready to stone me to death. He says, but this is what it looks like when God shows up on the scene. There are no more others. And I think in Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus asks them at the end of the parable, is your eye evil because I'm good? Can't I do what I want with my own things? I think it's a setup. I think it's to say to them, you are looking at those as if they do not deserve what it is that you have received. He says, are you not sure that your eye is not evil, that you're not intentionally trying to keep out that which could come in under the same grace that you are? And just in case you think the stranger doesn't count, the Luke chapter four stories to me seem to be Jesus tearing down those walls and going, there honestly is no difference. There's no difference between the widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian than there is in you and in me. Now, I'm not here right now to make the theological argument of what prayer you need to pray, what style of baptism you need to observe, what you need to understand about Holy Ghost fire or baptism or the fan that's in his hand, the soteriological statements of what it means to be saved and what you need to do. But all I am here to declare to you is what I think Jesus spent his life in ministry declaring is it's dad's party and he gets to do whatever he wants and he gets to invite whomever he wants. And I don't know who all's in, but I know I don't get to keep anybody out. That was Jesus's message. I don't know who gets an invitation. You know what, how Jesus ends Matthew 20, the, 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 the passage right after, is your eye evil because I'm good? He goes, the last is first and the first is last. That's the next verse. The last is first and the first is last. It's kind of Jesus' way of going. It's always going to be the last person you expect and it's not going to be the person you expect. So it's going to be the person you left out and it's probably not going to be the person you're pretty sure is in. So don't try to figure it out. Can't I be good to who I want to be good to, he says. Can't I give my stuff away the way I want to give my stuff away? Isn't it my stuff? He goes, I'm in the debt release business. I'm in the property returning business. I'm in the jubilee business. He goes, you've just thought you knew what jubilee meant because you thought it meant you get all the things you thought you deserve. But the truth is, is that I get to call jubilee. And I'm glad today that Jesus is the declarer of jubilee. I don't pray in a jubilee. I don't fast in a jubilee. Jesus is jubilee. Jesus is the jubilee and it's an endless jubilee. And what I really like is that it doesn't matter if you're a foreigner or my brother. What I consider my brother, what I consider my other, my foreigner. Doesn't matter because the jubilee doesn't have a boundary. Jesus gets to be good to whom Jesus wishes to be good. Widows of Zarephath, Syrian generals, he gets to pick. And if it angers me, then I know I have an evil eye. So the answer to the question is, is your eye evil because I'm good? I don't know your answer to the question. I know that I've got to be responsible for answering the question, which is when I see God good, if I can see a good God, and if I can't, I need to start there. When I can see a good God, if I struggle with who I think God's being good to, or who I think God is blessing, or who God is anointing, or who God is favoring, the issue is not that I need to sit down with them and copy what they are doing. The issue is that I need to sit down and figure out if my eye is evil. What is it about the way I perceive God in him that doesn't look like I think God should look? That is not a you issue. That is a me issue. And that is your issue to solve. That is not Christ's issue to solve in you. Oh, yes. Because that's our grace cop-out. 
Our Grace New Covenant cop-out is, well, Jesus is going to have to solve that in me. And there's going to be more than one thing in your life that Jesus comes along and goes, I've already paid for all this stuff. When are you going to let some stuff go and pick some other stuff up? I'm standing here waiting. I finished my work. I'm not asking you to work for any of your righteousness or your favor or your identity or your forgiveness. But I am saying you were created unto good works. Let's let some good works go, shall we? Let's start by loving the people he loves, forgiving whom he forgives. And if you say, I don't know whom he loves or he forgives, just start with, I don't get to tell him who not to. I personally believe that he doesn't have any limits. I don't believe he's met anybody he doesn't like. I believe he's met some, a lot of my moments that he's not pleased with some of the stupidity I'm pulling. Because that's the way I feel about my kids. See, I love my kids. I cried like a baby. My son walked across the platform last Sunday. I was tough. I wasn't going to cry. I really didn't even think about it. And then when I saw him and I realized that uh, he's not a kid anymore and he's a man and that he just went out and did something he dreamed of doing and that I I get messed up telling you that, so we're going to stop. I thought, man, look at him. There's nothing that kid could do, right? There's nothing that kid could do. I wouldn't love him. And I'll watch my daughter walk her. I, I, I dread this moment. I'll watch my daughter walk across the stage next Friday. And I'm going to say, there's nothing that girl couldn't do. I wouldn't love her. Nothing she could pull. No stunt she could devise. No stupid decision she could make. That I wouldn't be running after her. Just chasing her. till I drove her nuts. Dad loves you. Dad loves you. I don't believe God's put up a fence or a parameter. I'm not smart enough to know anything more than getting in is through Jesus. I'm not smart enough to know anything more than that. Getting in is through Jesus. I don't get to tell Jesus who gets in. We leave it in his hands. So what is our role? Yes, we love our neighbor. Yes, we try to make the world a better place by simply doing unto others as we'd have them do to us because it's a pretty good place to start. But we stop putting up the stop sign. We tear it down. Throw the Jubilee party for everyone. Love them equally, unconditionally. Accept them warts and all. When they come home smelling like hog pen, we love them. We don't wait for them to get home. We run down the lane with new shoes and new clothes and a fatted calf on the fire. And we go, we've been saving this for you, man. This is you. Yeah, but I haven't said the right prayer. I haven't done it. No, 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 no. I love how the father, just stop talking, son. Stop talking. Welcome home. You are the vagabond, the poor, the stranger. Perfect. Jubilee's thrown for you. You're not worse than Naaman the Syrian. You're not an outsider like the widow of Zarephath. And yet the grace of God extends to you. Is your eye evil because God is good? I don't think there's very many people in here with an evil eye. I know I'm preaching to the choir. But we have to lay these things out in front of us all of the time. Even when we think we got it nailed. We have to put it out in front of us so that we know it's a real thing. Because if Jesus asked his disciples... Maybe he's asking his disciples now. If he asked them, then maybe I need to take the question serious. And you didn't set through some sort of master class and you didn't set through a whole semester, but you got a little bit of what they had when they went into the question. And having a little bit of what they had when they went into the question and having a whole lot of what you have when you come into the question, who gets excluded in your world? I honor this church because it's a place that from the moment you park your car, you feel like Jubilee belongs to you, you know? Like you get to be part of the party. 
Like you don't have to know everybody's name and you don't have to have a history with them or a past with them. Just embrace you like, hey, welcome home, family. I always feel like that's what church should feel like no matter where you go. This idea that I gotta find a kingdom church or a grace church or a finished work church, I just wanna find a church that just accepts people. I'm gonna tell you what, I could handle a lot of stupid doctrine if you just loved people when they came through the door. If you just accepted people unconditionally, I mean, they could get up and say, because you're not gonna be happy anyway. Like if you're picking a church because I gotta nail the doctrine, you're gonna pick something apart and then you're gonna be a problem. (laughs) Really, I mean, because it's just gonna be pick, 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 pick. It's like that guy that comes out every week and goes, you know, that sermon was good, except, oh, you could have left that out. I mean, yeah, but this is a house I honor. I honor it. It's such a flow of the love of God and the grace of God, but that's the corporate. You're an individual inside of the corporate, happen to belong to a great family that is corporate, but you're going to walk out of the corporate gathering and you're going to go be an individual in a world that badly needs an individual to show up that looks like Jesus once in a while. And you might not walk on their water or turn their water to wine. You might not heal their sick and raise their dead. But if you can love them, if you can accept them the way Jesus did and went, Jubilee's come to your house today. Well, that's a good place to start. Father, I thank you today for what you've given us. Freely you gave it to me. Freely we gave it to them. Thank you for a house of grace, peace, forgiveness, mercy, and love. Thank you, Father, that you have chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. It doesn't make sense that everybody gets the same measure of your grace. And that's why it's yours, not ours. Father, forgive me for where I have cast the evil eye. Where I have made a predetermined decision about who probably gets an anointing or favor or the touch of God. I want that part of me out. I know I'm already forgiven at the cross. I know I don't have to come to you to receive a new forgiveness, but I want to say it out loud because I want to let go of the stuff that doesn't look like my Jesus. And so for whomever might have that, cast that evil eye. Maybe it's a family member. They're having a hard time accepting, just loving them because things don't line up right. Show us where that's an evil eye, if that's an evil eye. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's even someone sitting close by. Take our eye through the cross, filter it, redeem it, but show us what we need to lay down so that we can find the widow of Zarephath, Naaman the Syrian, and the five o'clock worker as worthy of the same grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church. Thank you. We love you. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Appreciate that.